We study billionaires, and this is episode 41 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Sting Broderson. Hey, everybody. How are you doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. So uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different than ones that we do in the past. And as everyone knows, we like to study billionaires and like hone in on what their critical variables are. But this episode is going to be just slightly different because I ran into one of my good friends, Brian Rutherford. And he also went to West Point uh, back in 2004 is whenever he graduated. So he was a year behind me whenever I went to West Point. And so I had a, the opportunity to link up with him down in Washington, D.C., and we conducted an interview together. And I really wanted to interview Brian because Brian uh, just recently went to MIT and he got his master's from MIT. And then uh, he's now an instructor at West Point. In the start of the interview that I had with Brian, I called him a professor, and he kind of alludes to the fact that he's not a professor. He's actually an instructor. So uh, as we cut to the tape where uh, him and I are talking, you'll hear him briefly say that. And that's that's where that's coming from, because I edited out some of the stuff that was discussed before that. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the tape. Um, unfortunately, Stig, who's with me right now, was not part of the interview because we did this uh, not through Skype. And that's the means that we typically do our interviews through is through Skype. But we actually did this in a hotel room where Brian and I were just sitting down and, and we recorded the conversation. And what I asked Brian to do was I said, Brian, I want you to come up with the seven biggest mistakes that you think investors make. And because he has a, a room of cadets that he's constantly teaching every single day up at West Point, uh, he sees a lot of different things kind of thrown his way, just like kind of Stig sees in his classroom as well. But so what Brian did is he came up with this list of the seven biggest mistakes. And that's what our conversation is about that you're going to listen to uh, as we go through what Brian thinks are the biggest mistakes that investors make. And so I really hope that you guys like this interview and we're going to cut to the tape right now. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Preston. And thanks for the opportunity to do this. Um, one thing I do want to clear up, I'm not a professor. So any professors out there, I'm an instructor of economics. I have an <laughs> MBA and not a PhD. So I wouldn't want anybody to uh, think that I'm taking a title that was not earned. Uh, I appreciate all of that. Um, but uh, I, I, I do just have a, a master's degree. Uh, but I really enjoyed my time at Sloan, uh, where I focused on entrepreneurship and also accounting. So uh, with that, I, I think I'll, I'll get started with my Let, first. Uh, let's do it. My first mistake that I think that new investors make, and I, one other thing to clear up. So cadets at West Point, their junior year, they have access to a loan, and it's uh, what we like to call it is, is the like the life starter loan. And and right now, last year it was thirty six thousand dollars that they get at about a half a percent interest, and it comes from USAA. You might have heard of that bank. They have commercials on TV all the time now, yeah. um, and I believe it's kind of like marketing spend for them that it's. Uh, that they, they get this low interest loan and, and they require you to have your direct deposit pay go there. So they know they have a customer for the five years that you're required to be in the military and you pay off that loan over five years. So anyway, so and, cadets... And I know from like my own personal experience, so like when we were at the military academy over a decade ago, we also got this loan. And as a cadet, I remember my loan was $25,000. Mine too. Yep. And when I was a junior, it was just like one morning you woke up 
up and you open your your you know you logged into your account and boom there was twenty five thousand dollars sitting there in your account. Now this is a loan you have to pay it back. It's not like it's free money. But I, I remember as a cadet, I saw twenty five thousand dollars sitting in my account and I was like. Wow, and it was just like you never thought about the fact that you were going to have to be making a payment on that for the next five years right. to try to pay it down. Because I mean, you're a young kid. I was 22 years old or 21 years old. I'd never like dealt with anything like that in my entire life. So it's it's an interesting vantage point as he's talking about what these students are doing with this money that they got that they didn't necessarily have to work for or work off yet they have no idea really how the the work involved in receiving that kind of sum of money and the cadets right now you said it was what 36,000 $36,000 and it's a, it's a great lead in for my discussion about assets and liabilities because they now have this asset of $36,000 when they wake up one morning and it's now in their bank account but then I I tell them that's also a liability. They actually have not increased their wealth at all. They have an asset that uh, exactly equals their liability. And so uh, we have a discussion about paying it off and what that means later in life. And, and, and what it means when they commission and when they, they get out into the Army is that about a third of their disposable income every month is going to go to pay that thing back. So they need to make smart decisions with the money. And, Which uh, all of them do. Yeah, right, of course. <laughs> you know, I have, uh, so as part of our, uh, you know, we teach them about personal finance and investing. And one of the assignments is, hey, tell me what you're going to do with your loan. And uh, I have people who are brutally honest that say that they're going to, once they graduate, they're going to go to Las Vegas and they're going to blow $5,000 in a week or two. And then you have people who, who tell you they're going to invest it all. Uh, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. So uh, so I get a lot of questions because I have these you know young men and women who are 19, 20, 21 years old that get uh, access to this kind of money and uh, they, they really want to do the right thing. I think, I, I believe yeah. by and large, they all want to do the right thing, um, but they don't know what to do. You know, they know what their parents did, generally speaking, uh, and they assume that that is right. But some of them, uh, some of them, you know, just just have all sorts of questions about uh, what to do. So, um, and you get a lot of them just because of their yeah. Type A personality um, that want to turn it into a hundred thousand dollars by next year. <laughs> there are plenty of old wives' tales about uh, the person who took their thirty-six thousand dollars and within three months they have turned it into a hundred thousand yeah. dollars and they are are living large at West Point. Uh, nobody knows if that's actually true. I bet that there's somebody around who has day traded, take on, taken on a bunch of risk, and it's worked out for them. Um, but in the short term, in the short term, <laughs> right? But I, but as a as a matter of rule, you know that that is probably not the case. So. Uh, um, so I guess I'll start here with my, my top seven mistakes. Which, uh, are these in prioritized order? These are not in prioritized order. As I was thinking about this, I think about the questions that I get from, from young people who are generally fairly intelligent. You know, they're, they're well-reasoned folks um, uh, that have just come into a little bit of cash, and so they're thinking about what to do with it. All right? So, so the first one, uh, and this is where I start when, when I'm asked about how I think about investing, the first thing they do is they look at a chart, either it's day, week, month, year, uh, and they think that is some sort of arbiter of future performance, right? That uh, it's just like going to the casino and looking at uh, their, their roulette board and saying, okay, it's been uh, black five times in a row, so I'm going to bet on red next time. Like that has any bearing on what's going to happen next. It's the same thing in the stock market. You look at a stock and you look at where it is 
and you you look backwards, you know, maybe you you want to look back three months because you're smarter than everybody else, and you know that you know what happened a year ago doesn't matter, but maybe three months really matters. And they'll look at uh, a chart and say uh, they'll make some sort of estimation of cheap or expensive, or I should be buying or I should not be buying. And I say that is abs- that is fool's gold. That is a, when you look at and you you can't go look at a stock without seeing a chart. There's no site that, that gives you information about a stock that doesn't also offer a chart. And uh, I think that would be the, 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 biggest, um, the biggest mistake, or, or one of the mistakes that I see is, is people relying on the charts. See, people seeing some Pricing charts, like the, yeah, pricing like charts. the price. Exactly. They yeah. just simply charts price you know, over the course of, uh, uh, of either day, week, month, year, whatever it is. They're not even looking at the profit. They're not looking at... They don't even know what the business does. You know? And that's yeah. one of my other top seven, is not understanding the underlying business. Um, I, I start a class in my accounting class by talking about uh, different fast food restaurants, right? And I, so I ask, what's the difference? Uh, how does I ask, how does McDonald's make their money? What is McDonald's? They're like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the typical answer is, oh, well, they sell hamburgers, and you know, they've gotten uh, their their strategy now is to get into more healthy things. They're doing salads, and, and maybe now they want to get into coffee because they realize that uh, Starbucks is, is making a lot of money. And now I think the newest thing was, uh, you know, we're going to serve breakfast all day because there are some people that prefer to have breakfast all day. So they tell me they, they tell me a story about how they make all of their money by how many hamburgers they sell. And I say, you know, you're right and you're wrong, right? McDonald's is is actually, if you look at how look at their balance sheet, they are a real estate company. Yeah. You know, they Ray Kroc even said that in some a, book I read. Absolutely, yeah. they are a real estate company. They own the ground that every McDonald's is on. They own the ground, and then the proprietor of that franchise probably owns the building, right? Yeah. And they probably uh, uh, they probably sell they probably buy their hamburgers from McDonald's corporate. And a whole list of uh, other things that they must do, but but first and foremost, they are a real estate company, probably the largest real estate company so in the country. When you look at it from a simplistic standpoint, and you're going to go buy a real small business on Main Street, and let's say that you were getting ready to buy it, and I said, okay, well, how does this small business make money? And you give me the wrong answer. You don't even know what it is. Yeah. My impression of, of your ability to actually do well in that venture of buying that small business is you're, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. That's exactly right, yes. And, and so when you see these students or anybody out there and they're getting ready to buy ownership of just one share, and that one share might only be $30, and they can't even tell you what the major operational earnings that, that they're bringing in that's really bringing in the, the breadwinner for the company, and they don't even know what that is. That's an issue, folks. Like you can't, you can't invest in stocks over the long term, and do it successfully if you can't answer some of those basic questions. Yeah, and knowing, that's just my knowing the opinion. knowing I the under the underlying business is really important. So they'll so the first decision is I see it's gone from fifty to thirty, and therefore it's a good value right now. Well, well, what else? What has caused it from to go from fifty to thirty? Has Wall Street lost faith in it? Has something gone wrong with their? Are they now uh, reporting a loss? 
Why is that loss? Is it a one-time restructuring, or is it a core business reason that they have uh, swung from well, a profit to a it, loss? It's funny you say that because there is, say, a business comes out and they say, "Well, we're gonna. This is a one billion dollar loss for the company." So my immediate question is, okay, so what does that loss turn into per share? Yeah. One billion dollars for a really big company might turn into one penny per share, but yet you might see the stock price go down by three dollars. So it might be a total overreaction, and it typically is a total overreaction to the news. But what was it per share? And, and it's funny that you brought this up as your first point because the one on my list, the very first thing I wrote was not understanding that one share is the same as owning the, mm-hmm. the entire business. And so I think those really go very close hand in hand. And that if you own one share of the business, that's the same thing as owning every single share of the business. Yep. And you've got to treat it that way. And you've got to understand, what does the business do? How does it make its money? Yeah, so exactly right. So so the first one, again, is looking at a chart and trying to make a determination of cheap versus expensive. And that, and that ties into uh, my second one is, is understanding what is cheap versus expensive. I said, uh, so I always bring up Apple. You know, everybody understands Apple. Half my, most of my cadets have an iPad in class. And uh, we talk about, is, is Apple cheap at, uh, I think today it closed at around $126. So is Apple cheap at $126? Well, um, two years ago, it was at about $700. So I guess it's cheap, right? Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this, is, this is the rationale that I get. It's cheap, uh, and, and therefore, um, I should maybe be buying it because I really like Apple products. Okay. Uh, well, why did it go from 700 to 100? Was there a massive decline in value? Oh, no, there was a stock split. And so we get into a discussion about what is stock splitting. Does stock splitting uh, or, or reverse split, does that create any value? Well, uh, you all are smart. Yeah, absolutely not. It does not create any value. Uh, okay, then why does Apple do it? Uh, well, I think the word on the street, a lot of people believe that Apple split their stock to maybe be included in the Dow one day, and that most stocks in the Dow are at $100, roughly $100 mm-hmm. or less, right? And a $700 share was never going to be uh, included in the Dow. I think we would all agree that, that Apple is integral to, it is a representative company of our economy, and the Dow is supposed to be 30 representative companies uh, that, that make up our economy. So I think a lot of people believed that Maybe in, to be included in the Dow 30, that uh, that they would have to have a lower share price. And Apple sees itself as kind of the everyman company. Every man should be able to maybe buy a share. Everybody should be able. Can to you get more it. people that can do that at 100 than that, at 70? That's exactly right because there's psychology in the market, right? There's psychology that 700 is expensive and 100 is less expensive. But really, those have nothing to do with cheap or expensive. It's all about earnings it's, per share. It's price, not value. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But if you don't have an understanding about that, yeah. you might be buying at 100. $126, uh, whereas that might might or might not be a good value, and 700 might have been a great value, because yeah. the 7 for 1 stock split they did, that would make the shares $100 a share. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So that's, that's a really important point. So uh, the, the market's offering you a price of $126. So you can buy for $126, but what is it worth? What, what is that one share of equity in the business worth? And that's where you have to go and you have to do discount cash flow models yeah. or whatever. That's where you really have to do some, uh, some legwork to figure out discount cash flow. How much are they going to earn into the future? What's the profit of the business? And if I discount that back to the present day value, what's it actually worth? And then you have to relatively compare that to other things that you can buy on the market. Yeah. That sounds like a really jumbled up com- mess of confusion for a lot of people that might not be into this stuff, you know. But it's not. It's it's uh you know in the understanding. This is one of my other big seven is not understanding risk and not uh, you know I will have a cadet who will come in and tell me that they invested in uh, that they did really well last year. They invested in two or three stocks. Let's just say they invested <laughs> in three stocks and they earned twenty percent. Great, they're really happy about that. I, I I did it wonderful. And I'll say great. What did the broader market do? What did the S and P five hundred do? What did uh, the Wilshire you know thirty 3500 Russell to compare it, yeah. yeah we got to compare it to something oh 
if the S&P also did 20%, then I will look at them and say, you lost. You lost to the market because <laughs> you took on extra risk. You know, and exactly. Of, exactly. I invested in three stocks and only was rewarded with 20% where I could have invested in 500 stocks. Reduced your risk. Reducing my risk yeah. and also earn 20%. So I say that they lost relative to the market. And that concept blows their mind. They, they believe uh, that they have now... They have picked three winners, and they are uh, they, they are a really good stock picker. And that's one of my other top seven, is that uh, what's really dangerous is to earn money in the short run. I got that same one. To, to earn, <laughs> earn money on one or two stocks in the short run, and then overestimate your ability, take more idiosyncratic risk, right? Mm-hmm. And, and not understand why you're taking that risk. Uh, and and you will you will fail at one point. You will put yeah. more money into one or two things that will lose fifty percent in value when the whole stock market maybe only goes down. You know, it has a normal correction of maybe ten percent, and they've lost half their money. And yeah. uh, and they realize that maybe this isn't good. But the problem is when good things happen, and this is basic psychology. When good things happen, they attribute it to themselves. When bad things happen, they attribute it to things outside of their control. control they say, yeah. oh, the market that specific. <laughs> company, something bad happened. It's surely it's surely not my fault because remember back, you know, when I first started doing this, I picked a couple of winners when the whole market was going up. So Which is a compounding problem because when they get back into the situation again, it was I didn't lose money last time. That wasn't my fault. Yeah. But whenever I did make money, that was my yeah, was my awesome picking ability. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So so we've talked about a few of the the top sevens we said looking at a chart uh, you know, the most dangerous thing that can happen is making a little money early or a lot of money early and, and, and not, attributing it and to, attributing it to yourself yeah. and not uh, market forces. Right. Uh, making a determination about cheap versus expensive based on the stock price alone. I have so many people who want to invest in uh, stocks under like that. The ten dollar range. They think that they are. <laughs> yeah, that they the can buy stocks. Or- yeah, they pay me stocks. Oh, I can buy five thousand shares. And all it needs to go up is, you know, two or three cents, and I've made a lot of money. And I say they will just as easily go down two or three cents. And because those are generally very thinly traded shares, they don't know even what thinly traded means. Yeah, they don't understand uh, liquidity, volume. right? Uh, that, that they could be uh, they could be locked in and not be able to offload those things. So so again, this this is an opportunity for me to bring up different aspects of investing uh, to people who don't know, and they're all trying to do the right thing. They all want to. You know, they're acting in kind of their self-interest. And, well, and they're they, motivated. They're they wanna, motivated. Yeah, they yeah. want to read and they want to consume. And this is the first time for many of them. And, uh, and, and it's great. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to stand up there. As somebody who did this himself, I was doing this Heck back yeah. in 2003 <laughs> and 2004. You know, I thought, you know, I, I got my loan at the, at the dawn of the uh, really a, a, about a seven-year bull market, right? I got it in 2003. So I guess maybe maybe not quite seven years, but uh, I invested in you know individual securities. I was making good money, uh, and then again, not attributing it to market forces, I was attributing it to myself. And uh, and sure enough, you know, when the market uh, went down in two thousand eight, uh, I went down with it. So, so it's, it's almost like looking in a mirror yourself. It, it absolutely is <laughs> a decade decade older. I looked at all of my instructors as they were out of touch and they didn't know, and now I'm that instructor who is. Clearly, again, out of touch, and I don't know. So, uh, but that's okay. You know, some of these lessons, I, I want them to learn with their, 
you know, $30,000 now. I, I would appreciate <laughs> that you learn lessons now versus, you know, 20, 30 years from now when they're talking about millions of, potentially. Or they inherited a large They inherited of money, a money exactly. Yeah. So earn, learn these lessons now. And uh, uh, so, so try it out. So uh, the losses aren't too steep. Um, okay, so the next one um, that I'd like to talk about is really is is uh, is opportunity cost, right? Um, and this is so we ask cadets at the very very end of the semester, uh, what is the thing? What is the biggest lesson that you've learned? And a lot of them talk about personal finance, and they talk about just the idea of opportunity cost. If I'm investing in one thing, that I'm not investing in another thing, right? And we see this in a number of ways. I have some cadets who understand. Um, and they believe, I believe because their parents probably did this, that they've invested in treasury bills, uh, CDs, things that are very safe, you know, and that is, uh, that's very common, right? That people invest, they, they are, they're very risk averse, and so they invest in things that are very safe. But if you're investing in something that provides you 1% or 2%, then you're not investing in something else, yep. right? And so they just that that starts to blow their mind that that there is something else out there. Oh no, no, I'm really happy with one or two percent. I said, are you happy with one or two percent because you don't know that there's something else out there, or you're happy intrinsically with one or two percent? And then I talk about you know it leads into a conversation about inflation, right? That if you're only earning one or two percent. You're going to be lucky to keep up with inflation. Yeah, you're losing your buying power. Yep. You know, and uh, and so again, we, we have discussions about uh, the the power of money. Would you rather have a dollar today or a dollar a year from now? And that seems pretty simple. But then when you re- relate that back to investing in CDs or T bills or or bonds, you know, when they're at 19, 20, 21 years old, um, they they sometimes don't make that logical leap, right? And yeah. I try to help them see that that. You know what? If you're 20 years old and you have money to invest, and you know that this money is for when you retire, say you're you're 60, 65 years old, you probably shouldn't be in CDs with that money right now. Um, yeah. You know that that doesn't that doesn't make sense, and there, it comes with an opportunity cost. So, uh, and, and they over time we talk about opportunity cost in many different. Uh, uh, realms and so I think they come to have an appreciation. Of I think that. a lot of people don't realize that investing in general, it's it's all relative game. So if if you take the United States population as a whole, and you got a few people investing at one percent, you got other people out there making twenty percent returns, like Warren Buffett yeah. made through yeah. his whole career. Like um, it's it's all relative to the other person so there's only a certain amount of cash flow and if you're in, if you're one of these people that are protecting your principal but you're at the bottom end of the returns you're the, <laughs> you're a guy that's going to be at the bottom of the barrel i mean it's just really you're that, exactly that right and understanding the the counterparty to what you're doing this is my other mistake that people make they don't understand when they're buying something they're making a bet. They think that if I'm buying, clearly you believe that some that some security is going to go up in value. Well, somebody's selling you that security. Oh, I love this conversation. And yeah. clearly, they believe it's going to go down. So cadets, uh, they love to believe that they know something that other people don't, right? That yeah. they are a little bit smarter. And maybe this is a function of the institution a little bit. Um, they get inundated, uh, told many times that they are the best and brightest, and they are, you know, everybody's <laughs> a valedictorian from high school, and everybody's amazing, and they are. They generally, they're, they're, yeah. they're a great group of young men and women, and uh, it's, it's, it's great to be there uh, and, and teach them, um, but 
I, I remind them <laughs> I that this. just 50 miles south of where West Point sits on the Hudson, just 50 miles south, is New York City, where there are lots of people whose whole livelihood depend on them making a bet about things going up or down. And I ask them if... Who, who do you think has more information? Do you think it's you, cadet, who's trying to speculate or trade a little bit in between your classes, or somebody whose entire livelihood is based on you know betting on a stock going up or down, who is there 18 hours a day, they have a team of analysts, you know, I'm talking about a portfolio manager, somebody yeah. who's working down on Wall Street, and, and, and they have access to tons of information, they have access to um, you know, the CFO, CEO of these companies, they are on investor calls, they are on earnings report calls, they are... Getting 35 all of this. years of experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I said, who do you think has more information? You know, and they almost all agree that, that somebody who does this 24 hours a day, they have more information. I said, okay, well, when you're buying a stock, somebody's selling it to you. And yeah. who do you think is selling it to you? You know, it could be somebody else, just like you, small investor, you know, playing around with a few thousand dollars, or it could be a big seller, right, who has potentially, and I know that the, we want to believe that all stock market information, all company information is public. Well, it may be public, but that doesn't mean you as small investor has actually read it and, and knows it and has assimilated that into the price. So just understand that whenever somebody's selling you something, that they have the exact opposite view of you. Exactly. And, and they don't have a clear understanding of where they are in the market. In fact, some of them, some of the people who trade believe that they are buying stock from the company. That the company is selling them shares, and then when they decide to sell, that they're selling it back to the company. Mm -hmm. I said, that's that's not exactly how they work. Leads into a discussion about IPOs, and that's when the company gets money the the first and only time, unless they're buying back shares. But uh, uh, again, that level of understanding is kind of what I'm dealing with, and and that's, that's... perfectly legitimate. I probably thought that at one point. Somebody had to explain about what's going on when you're buying and selling in secondary markets and that sort of thing. I I, uh, I like to always think right before I push the, the buy or the sell button on any type of security to think to myself, am I the smart person or am I the dumb person on this deal? And if I can't, you know, say with a whole lot of confidence and, and back up quantifiably all the reasons why I think I'm the smart person on the deal, um, it's a little harder to push that button to to execute the order. And I think that if a lot of people had a little bit more respect for maybe the person on the other side of the deal, what is their vantage point? How can I understand their vantage point a little bit better? Um, and I think if you don't do that due diligence and really try to shoot holes through your own opinions, um, you're going to probably have a hard time being successful in the market. And uh, in the Jack Schwager book, who profiles the, the very best investors of all time, one of the things that I found really interesting was he, he talked about how some of the guys that were really good traders specifically, they could, ch- they could change their opinion on a dime where they would be really bullish on one thing and then literally the next minute they would turn into an absolute bear. And he attributed this to, the, to their ability to really look at things objectively and say, hey, I had this opinion and these were all the reasons why. But then whenever I thought about the other person's perspective, maybe the person who was you know, selling when you were buying, <laughs> whenever they assessed all the reasons why they were doing it, they were e- easily able to say, you know what, not only was I wrong, but now I'm going to take the exact opposite position and I'm actually going to go in the opposite direction. So 
Um, I think if you're the type of person that's a very idealistic type person where you come up with three reasons why you think something is right or wrong and you really hold tight to that and you're not open to other people's perspectives, you're probably going to have a hard time being successful, um, a successful trader, let alone investor. You're, you're exactly right. You know, and to illustrate this, and, and I know you know part of the theme is talking about billionaires. I'll tell you who's the the, the billionaire that, that that takes up a lot of the bandwidth in the classroom that we talk about is, is Elon Musk and Tesla, right? Uh, well, first of all, we talk about how Elon Musk is not only linked to Tesla, that he has two other very large and successful businesses, SpaceX and uh, Solar City. Uh, but he, you know, people want to, uh, you know, my cadets really, they want to know about Tesla, Tesla stock, Tesla cars are really interested about, should I buy, should I sell? And uh, I think this, this illustrates this uh, point that Preston's talking about, is you see wild swings in the price because people are changing their mind all the time about Tesla. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, te- uh, Elon came out and said at $160 that he thought his own stock was a little overpriced, right? You know, so this is uh, 2012 or, or maybe... And he has an economics uh, yeah. background. Just Let's just agree <laughs> that Elon knows more about what's going on in, in Tesla than what we investors do. And when Elon says, hey, he 160 <laughs> is, uh, is a little bit high... We should all have been running for the doors, right? When an insider says that, then, you know, and he knows his cash flow better than you and I, we should have probably gotten out. You know, but that didn't happen, right? You saw it go up to $250 and then back down and up and down. And why? Why is that? You know, well, there's not a long track record for Tesla. Tesla makes right now one car. I know they've announced the battery for the home, and, and you know that's a exciting potential market. But right now, there's probably more risk and more questions than there are answers. The Gigafactory that's being built in Reno, you know, that is their limiting factor for be, being able to produce cars. How many lithium batteries can we produce? I don't think anybody knows the answer. If you read their 10K, they talk about putting $5 billion to this project and Panasonic's going to build, you know, show up with some money and they're going to get some tax breaks from Nevada and this is all going to coalesce together and it's going to be perfect. Nobody's ever built a, a lithium-ion uh, battery gigafactory, mar- right? Or knows what the market is for it. And, and oh, by the way, they're buying a huge percentage of the world supply of lithium. I mean, do they, they must believe that that's going to do something to the price in the long term. So I think there's more questions than answers. And if you look at the mass market uh, model, I think, what is it, the Model X? Not the Model X is the SUV, but the, the other one that's supposed to be the mass market $35,000 car. This is all predicated on the factory being up and running full operating capacity at a certain time to be able to produce batteries at a certain price so that they can sell this mass market car at $35,000. We are all at 200, 250, whatever the stock price is today, we are pricing that in as, as being successful. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of risk there. And, uh, you know, this isn't uh, to uh, rub on Elon. I think he's an incredible person. And really, if I was to invest in a person, uh, he would be near the top of the list. However, there are still market forces and still... Um, you still uh, got to produce it. You, yeah. you absolutely. There's still some execution risk, that uh, lots of execution risk that he has to get through. And so, uh, so ultimately, I, I try to I try to showcase this for cadets that there's a lot of risk in this price. And uh, if you're a speculator, you're if you're investing in, in Tesla today, I would say unless you're going to invest and let it go and not look at it for ten years, which is 
darn near impossible to do, then you're a speculator. You are speculating that he's going to be able to do some of these things and that will turn into profits. But understand that that is not... That's not like getting a dividend and, and taking you know four to five percent you know as a as a as a good return. You're speculating that, that he's going to be able to do all this stuff. And it, it, it's a, it's an interesting discussion because you're bringing up the terms speculation and investing yeah, yeah. and the contrast between those. And so Benjamin Graham, who was uh, people know Ben Graham was basically the guy who taught Warren Buffett everything he knows, and he was he was his professor at Columbia. Uh, ben Graham wrote the book The Intelligent Investor and Security Analysis, which Warren Buffett says are the two you know books that have influenced him more than anything else. And Ben Graham starts off The Intelligent Investor. In the very first chapter, he talks about this idea of speculation versus investing. Yeah. And he defines the difference between speculation and investing as if you are an investor, you A, protect your principal first, and B, you take a a reasonable return, and he kind of quanti- He doesn't really necessarily define what reasonable is, but uh, I think a lot of people would define that as about a ten percent return is kind of what you should really classify as reasonable. Anything above that that you're expecting a fifty percent return and there's a huge amount of risk on your principal, that immediately falls into this category of speculation, which is which is not investing. And I think that that's where. Graham really sets himself apart and Buffett and all these other billionaires that are really successful. They focus on what is probable. What is my probability of success? And is it giving me a decent return relative to other opportunity costs out there? And if the answer is that it's giving me a good return and it's protecting my principal and there's a high probability of success, that's something I want to go after. Uh, Buffett has this quote. He says, I want to step over the three foot or two foot bars or something like that. I'm probably messing up the quote. All this wine. <laughs> but he says, I, I'd rather step over a two foot bar than to try to jump over a 10 foot bar. And that's what he's getting at with that quote is, I want to protect my principal. I will go after a decent return. I am not chasing high returns with low probabilities of success because that's how you lose a lot of your principal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Speculating versus investing, I think cadets generally don't understand what they're doing, right? Uh, When they're uh, clicking the buy button and I'm going to buy a block of stock. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. 
We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. And this is really getting to the essence of a thing we call patience. You know, if you are patient and you are trying to uh, um, accumulate a lot of wealth over a lifetime, it's a lot easier for that person to invest than it is for them to speculate. You know, these people that are speculating, these these really anxious cadets, I mean, I was was one of these guys, uh, you know, over a decade ago, so it's it's kind of fun to, to talk about it because I remember being in that state of mind where... You want to do big things really early. You just want to jump out of the gate and get after it. And that's where these guys are at. They don't possess the patience. And I think for anybody that's going to be a large success in the market, you've got to have some patience. Um, let me. I'm just going to look through my list really fast and see uh, if there's any really big ones that um, I have that we didn't necessarily cover on your list. Um, so the one that we talk about, and we talk about this a lot on the show, is really protecting your downside. And it really goes to mm-hmm. what we were just talking about is protect your principal. These guys who are the number one investors in the world across the board, you know, have managed billions of dollars or they have their own net worth of a billion or more. They always mention protect your downside. You've got to protect your downside. So like we look in the current market right now. So a lot of people are chasing measly returns in my opinion that's my opinion i could be completely wrong but my opinion is is that you know based on how the market is currently priced it's at about a four percent return i think and the the date is nine june when we're recording this 2015 just so people know so 
At 9 June 2015, the market, in my opinion, is priced at about a 4% return. When you look at fixed income, so you look at a 10-year treasury, I I think it's what, 2.5%, 2.7%, somewhere around in there. So those are the returns that people are chasing with their money. I don't really think that those are very good returns. I think that you're potentially setting yourself up for a liquidity trap. And I know we were talking a little bit about that before we started recording, but um, it's very important for you to think, Am I am I in a position where the risk that I'm assuming in going after a four percent return is worth that potential liquidity trap? The way that I'm just defining it, is it worth that? Is the downside risk of the market taking a huge correction worth that four percent gain? Yeah, I'm of the opinion that a lot of my money is not worth that. Yeah. but that's my personal opinion. I completely agree, Preston. I, I mean, so to illustrate this, um, I had a good story about a Cadet coming in to talk about. Uh, the, the company Lumber Liquidators, they sell flooring uh, to uh, millions of homes in the United States. And there was a story about three months ago on uh, 60 Minutes about how a lot of their flooring was not meeting the code that was being even stamped on the flooring. So it was made in China, and they had very high levels of formaldehyde and other carcinogens. And, uh, ethics came, concerns. Yeah, no, ethical, <laughs> ethical concern, absolutely. So the, the Wednesday before the Sunday 60 Minutes episode, the CEO came out and said, Hey, there's going to be a uh, a story run on lumber liquidators this Sunday, and it put us in a negative light. That day, that Wednesday, lumber liquidators uh, stock went down by about 25 percent. So I think it was a high about 70. So 25 percent uh, 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 run on on that day, on that Wednesday. The story happens on Sunday, comes out. It was maybe a little bit worse than what people thought. So Monday, it takes another 25 to 30 percent uh, loss. And, uh, and I'm teaching class on Tuesday. So, so cadets come in, and they've read the, the news, and maybe they even watched the story, and they said, hey, sir, again, looking at the chart first, saying, hey, this stock is down almost 50%. I should maybe be in this sort of thing. And this gets to Preston's point about understanding your downside risk. I said, okay, what is the downside? What is the risk here? What? Why would you make an investment today? What is your why premise? Why would somebody be selling even more? <laughs> yeah, what is your premise for buying today? And they said, well, because it's gone down 50%. Like, that is not a reason to buy <laughs> because you don't know what your downside is. You know what maybe potentially the upside is because you know what it was selling at, trading at before, but now this new information comes to light. It's assimilated in the stock price, and, uh, and it's down. So I think at that point the stock was about forty dollars, and uh, if you if you run the story forward now, I think it's trading at twenty five or so. Uh, it's down even further. And it's because more information has come to light, and we the investors are understanding what the downside is, and they're not touching it. I had the opportunity to, to take some guys to Boston and talk to the CEO of Highfields Capital Management, one of the largest hedge funds in the United States, John Jacobson, uh, out of Boston, who famously shorted Enron about six months before. Uh, it imploded, mm. uh, made a lot of money there, and has since done well. And uh, so, cadets ask him about lumber liquidators. He said, "We don't. We have lots of models for what's going on. We can't even model what's going on with that company right now. So we aren't going to touch it." And he is a, a person who likes to take a big position, uh, whether it's a short position or whether it's a long position. Um, but it's got to it's got to work in his models. And and I'll just believe that he has lots of smart people working for him. <laughs> and if they can't model what the potential upside or downside is that it's something that, that I shouldn't be touching either. So. so the part I like about this is it gets to the point that I really wanted to highlight, 
which is one of my big seven, and that is the appreciation for all the variables at play. And I think that a lot of people come up with a, th- a, f- a few talking points, if you will. It's like almost like they're elevator pitches. They're right. trying to sell you on why they bought whatever. Right. And it's so surface deep. They, they've got three talking points, and they're like, hey, it's a great buy because A, it's a great buy because of B, and it's a great buy because of C. And notice how I said it's a great buy. They never talk about That's right. the downside risks that contrast to whatever they think their upside is. And even if you did have three downsides, now you're only dealing with six variables. Yep. And when you're talking about some of these businesses, sometimes there's so many different variables at play, and I don't think that a lot of people have an appreciation for... Um, that complexity yeah. of what they're really dealing with. And I think that the, the, the better that you can define this, and Graham talks about this in security analysis a lot where you know he talks about the certified financial analyst. It is his duty to dig into all these different yeah. variables and then weight them and figure out, hey, what are all the things that could go wrong? What are all the things that could go right? And that's the people that you're going against. So, so for some of these young investors that are doing individual stock picks, they they might not have an appreciation for how involved some of those people are on the other side of the deal that are maybe selling or buying their shares. And I think that really kind of having that appreciation for all these different variables and really trying to shoot holes through. Mark Cuban has a great quote. He says, I always try to figure out how I could kick my own ass. And I think that that's a great way to look at things because when you're buying stocks, if you're if you're buying something, how could I lose? How could there be somebody that has the opposite opinion of this beat me at, at what I've got? I think when you look at it from that vantage point, I know Ray Dalio, you know, biggest hedge fund manager on the planet. That's how that's why he has these boards and he sits in these rooms with all these people and it's like, hey, here's my idea. I want everybody in here to tell me why I'm wrong. And then he tries to quantify that and figure that out. And I think that that's one of the things you've got to do as an investor is you've got to try to beat yourself up. Why am I wrong? Instead of just trying to sell yourself on why you're right. And this is exactly, so to go back to the topic of this whole podcast is what are the mistakes that young investors make? And this is what they don't do, right? You look for self-affirming uh, you know, information and you weight that more heavily than something that could tear down your argument for buying something. And that's what... That's what younger people do. I mean, they 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 want to be right. You know, they've been right probably all of their life. They they've done very well. They made it into the military academy, and now they want to make a good investment. And they look for the information that supports the decision that they probably already made. Right? They mm-hmm. probably click buy and then then try to, to determine why they've actually bought it. Yeah. Oh, I bought Tesla because it was really interesting, and it was down 5% today. And uh, Elon Musk is a And he's, he's amazing. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to bring it back. Well, again, remember, not two years ago, he said, hey, $160 stock price feels a little bit high to him, right? Yeah. So, so I think we need to take that into, uh, into account. So. Well, hey, so that's all we got. Um, I think that this was a fantastic uh, interview. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was pretty exciting to be able to link up with you down here in D.C. We did this, uh, as you probably notice, uh, my voice sounds a lot different. That's because we're using a little recording device in my hotel room. Um, so I don't have access to all my recording equipment. But uh, I was so excited to be able to do this, to just sit down and share some of these, these experiences because so many people are in the same situation where they're new investors. They haven't had this exposure. They haven't felt the pain of going through 
through a 2008, 2009 crash. And, um, you know, when you go through something like that, you definitely look at the world through a different lens. And hopefully we're able to help people that, you know, if there is a if, if there is a market downturn in the next couple of years, um, maybe some of this information will have been useful for them to maybe mitigate some of that risk. Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Preston, for the opportunity to come and talk and, uh, and share what, uh, you know, what I what I talk with other people with. And I, I believe some of these issues are, are, are what's on a lot of people's minds. Sometimes you don't want to speak up and say, hey, I don't really understand what I'm investing in. But uh, uh, but the cadets certainly do, and we have a, a good interaction. So I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, one question I got for you, and we ask every single guest that comes on our show this question. If there was one book that you could recommend uh, to anybody in the audience, and most people recommend an investing book, but it doesn't have to be investing, something that has impacted you tremendously, what would that book be? Yeah, it's my most recent read right now, and it's Robert Cialdini's Influence. I, I think that uh, <laughs> no matter what you're doing in life, you are always trying to influence people, whether you're in sales or whether you're uh, a marketing person or whether you're just trying to sell your idea to your boss and trying to get that raise. You're always trying to sell somebody on something and understanding the, the keys of influence. I would absolute, absolutely recommend that book to anybody. Robert Cialdini, uh, one of the foremost thinkers on influence. So uh, Stig and I did an entire podcast episode on that book. Um, I was, that was pretty neat that you said that you liked that book. Um, by the way, that's Charlie Munger's favorite book, who's the vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway, pretty smart guy. Who's, a, who's a billionaire. Um, so uh, we will have a link to our interview that we did on the, like, the top high points of the influence. I'll also have a link in the show notes. Uh, if you want to download our executive summary of that book, if you don't have time to read it or you don't have time to go out and get it, uh, we wrote an executive summary of that book. You can download that executive summary on our show notes. Um, also, if you sign up on our mailing list, you can get all of the executive summaries that Stig and I write for all the books that we do. But awesome recommendation. That's one of my top, probably one of my top five favorite books of all time. So uh, that's pretty neat to hear you say that. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was, it was awesome to have you here. Thanks a lot, Preston. Okay, so I hope you guys really enjoyed that interview with Brian. Uh, This is the point in the show where we're going to go ahead and answer a question from a member of our audience. And this question comes from Frank Borgia, and he has a great question. So we're going to go ahead and play that right now. Hey, Preston and Stig. Um, I know you guys are really big into accounting. Um, So my question is accounting related. How does a company like Tesla continue to operate with negative net income and negative free cash flow since 2007. How does it even continue to keep its doors open? Thank you so much. All right, Frank, this is a fantastic question, and I'm just surprised you haven't heard of the money tree. Um, They just go out to their money tree. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, Obviously, there is something that's a little funky going on because it doesn't make any sense. And I think for a lot of people that are starting off, they'll they'll see that and they'll immediately say that none of this stuff makes any sense because if a, a company can't keep its doors open if they have a negative flow of of income a year after year, but that's not necessarily the case. And so Stig's going to answer this one because this is a hard question. So I'm going to throw it over to Stig. Yeah. So, you know, I really like this question, uh, Frank, and it's also something uh, I think that a lot of people that invest in, um, let's call it tech stocks or, or new issues, they might be uh, meeting. So it's really uh, great hearing that you're on the right path here. So basically, there's there's two ways to uh, to do this. If you, if you want to operate a business and you can't uh, sustain that business with the with the net income. Uh, the first one is debt. 
So basically, uh, I just pulled up some number uh, whenever I heard the uh, the question because I found it was really interesting. And I can see that back in 2010, Tesla had 72 million in long-term debt. Uh, today, or by the end of 2014, they have 1.8 billion in long-term debt. So that's uh, that's one of the secrets of, of why they can um, still uh, be operating. Uh, the other thing, which is not debt, but a kind of debt, is that they're issuing, uh, issuing more shares. So actually, when they issue shares and when they get more shareholders, they kind of just owe that money to the shareholders, um, which in turn, of course, will, uh, will dilute the, uh, the shares of the existing shareholders. And so just to give you an idea again of some of the numbers, uh, they're actually gotten uh, more than $1.7 billion raised in additional uh, equity uh, from the capital market since 2010. So... I mean, I, I'm not. This is not me saying that Tesla is a bad business or anything. This is just me saying that uh, it's definitely not a Warren Buffett type of business. It's not one of those stable companies where you buy into the earnings and you would just see steadily money flowing back to you. It's uh, it's definitely another type of business. So, Frank, the best way that I can tell you to help you solve problems like this in the future, because whenever I was first starting off, the thing that helped me the most was trying to always relate something back to my own personal life or my own personal experience. So I would ask myself in this situation, how could I continue to not make money and have enough to get by from day to day? So the easiest way to answer that question is, well, I'd have to go out and I'd have to get more loans than what I have right now, or I'd have to have people lend me more money. Uh, And then the last scenario that Stig talks about is basically diluting the equity of the business or or selling more shares on the open market to raise cash. And that's really the best way I've found to really kind of solve these these difficult accounting questions is how would this relate to me as an individual person or individual investor if I was in a similar circumstance? And when you do that and you go through that mental gymnastics, you're sometimes able to solve the problem a little bit better. But uh, Stig's answer was spot on, and hopefully that really helps uh, everybody crack this problem. So, uh, Frank, really appreciate the question. We're going to go ahead and send you a free signed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. And for anybody else out there, if you want to ask a question like Frank and get it played on the air and get a free signed book by us, uh, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there and hopefully it'll get played on the air for you. So that's all we have for you guys this week. We really want to thank Brian Rutherford for coming on the show and uh, giving us a fantastic interview. I really hope that that helps people think about those difficult problems that maybe they might be overlooking that are potential risks as they uh, continue to invest uh, in the market. So thank you so much, Brian, and thank you, Frank, for the question. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.